No? Yes. All right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comment a little more on some of that here in a, in a few minutes, but let me just tell you. So if you've, if you've not, we're going to be going through the book of John and, uh, for a while, and so just make sure you are keeping up. Um, one, it's not considered cheating to read ahead. Uh, that's, that's not how this works. It's an open book test. Um, you can, you can uh, read anytime you want. In fact, it's highly recommended. Um, and uh, if you miss a week, they're on the website um, under teaching. And the last two weeks, Paul has taught through the very introduction of the book of John. Um, and if you, did, if you miss those, you need to go back and listen to those, watch those. Um, what was taught in the introduction of the book of John is among the most important material that God has shared with man, period. It is among the most important stuff you can ever read, you can ever learn, is the truth of who Jesus Christ truly was and is and what that means for us, what that means for the life we're going to live. And, and everything else we're going to read in the book of John is going to be a wee bit shaky for you if you haven't, uh, if you haven't gone back and seen who this is we're talking about. Um, also, to make sure you've got the right visuals in your mind as we're going through the book of John, um, John is not as narrative um, as the other three Gospels, the, the three what are called synoptic, synoptic Gospels, but um, it is still, there's still a narrative to it. So I want you to have, as we, as we go through these stories, these accounts, I want you to have the right uh, pictures in your head. One of them is going to be on, on what these disciples might have looked like, um, and so it's our natural tendency, if you've grown up in the church, that you're picturing a, um, these, these like 50, 60-year-old men with big Jewish beards wandering around with Jesus, right? Is that, is that what you picture? I hope not, right? You're a, a good, well-educated Jewish audience like you are, and uh, that you'd have a correct understanding that these would have been young men, um, at least younger than Jesus. It's extremely unlikely you'd have had a bunch of 50-year-olds following a 30-year-old rabbi, um, especially in that time. Um, but, but probably really young men. In fact, there's a couple of hints at um, probably quite a bit younger than maybe even you, you're thinking if you've not heard this, but when Jesus has the temple tax gathered from the mouth of a fish by the apostle Peter, he only gets temple tax money for two people, maybe meaning that there's only two of them old enough to pay the temple tax, Jesus and Peter, which would have made all the others younger than about age 18. Um, and, and especially with John, who's apparently the younger brother of James, is that you would have had um, John at the cross. You have this crazy account where, where Jesus is hanging from the cross and takes a minute before he dies. Um, as he's paying for the sins of mankind, he takes a second and says, oh, and by the way, John, this is now your mother. Woman, this is now your son. That's a pretty good indication that Jesus is, is kind of relinquishing responsibility for John to Mary um, because John was still a child, meaning John would not have yet had his bar mitzvah. He would not be considered a man yet. And so John very likely was like maybe age 11 um, or 12 as he's wandering, or at the oldest, as he's wandering around with Jesus um, for these three years. So have that correctly pictured in your mind um, of, of somewhere around that age. So that's, that's important. Holland, how old are you? You're 11? Yeah, so stand up. And he'd be, he would have been big for the first century Jewish man. So there you go. There's John, the Apostle John, right there when he's running around with Jesus. Okay, so have the right mindset in your, in your head. Um, so that's, that's who is now 50 years later, probably-ish, writing the book of John. Um, there's a really good chance that John had scribes and students who were actually doing the pinning of the Gospel of John. It may not have been John's actual hand writing it, um, but that wouldn't be strange or weird. It would be that John's accounts, John's stories, John's sermons, 
um, at, at worst, compiled into what we have as the book of John. Um, none of them have copyright dates on them. None of the Gospels do, or authorship dates, or authorship names on them. But this is, this is historically and traditionally what we've known to be the Gospel of John. Um, one of the things that may confuse you as you're reading it is when you see the name John in the Gospel of John, it isn't John the, God, the, the author being talked about. It is John the Baptist being talked about. Um, so that can confuse you. When you see the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John the Apostle. Um, and so as you're reading ahead, just let, giving you a little heads up, I don't want you to be confused. Um, so on that note, the, the idea of, of Jesus discipling these young men, let me introduce you a little bit to Josh Sutton. Um, I said the first service, I wish I had photos, but then it struck me as even as I said it that those photos might include me, um, and that might be a bad idea. So I, I knew Josh, I was Josh's youth minister, intern, discipler, something, whatever my title was back then, about 23 years ago. And, uh, and so if you can imagine, if you can imagine that. Um, and so Josh was a, uh, a goofy ninth grader, and I was a, a, a very certain, though completely inexperienced youth minister at the time. Um, I had that lovely combination, um, which every church wants in a staff member, let me just tell you. Um, no mistakes made there. But the... Um, I would, I would get time with Josh and just, we would sit and talk and, and he would drink Surge Soda. That was his nickname was Surge. Anybody remember Surge Soda? A few of you addicts remember that? That was um, a nightmare. So, um, uh, so Josh would drink Surge and, uh, and then I, we would talk about what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a godly man and, and, uh, and just, just stuff, life. Um, what it meant to follow Jesus, and he sat in talks and was a part of a leadership group that I ran, and, and then he would school me on uh, James Bond Goldeneye. Um, anybody? Yes? A few of you? Yeah, so you know that room that had the, roof, the hole in the ceiling? He got me there every time. Like every, every, that was for like the four people in the room, you know what I'm talking about. For everybody else, let me just tell you, there are a few things more humbling and more satisfying than being led by someone who you have discipled. If you've never gotten to experience that, if you are not discipling people, um, I, I honestly feel sorry for you. I mourn for you. Um, to get to experience someone teaching, um, like we've, I've talked about before, um, I discipled uh, John Redfern years and years ago, and to get him to, for him to be able to lead us in worship, lead me in worship week after week, to lead my family in worship week after week. Um, I discipled Paul McKenzie many, many years ago, and getting to hear some of my thoughts come out of my children's mouth because they've heard Paul teach it. I mean, that is, I'm telling you, there's nothing like knowing that your children are walking according to the truth. Um, if you are not getting to experience, like Josh, I'm going to comment again on this in a few minutes, Josh leading us so well in worship this morning, um, to get to see that and experience that, and then, and then for him to have this beautiful family. I mean, none of us saw that coming. Not... <laughs> I mean, no, Josh himself probably wakes up daily like, what the heck? And so, um, I know I do. So I'm right there with you, brother. So um, you just, it's just stunning. God's grace is for everyone, which is, by the way, to make a segue, a part of the aspect of the book of John that makes it so cool is this gospel message in the book of John is for everyone. John is looking back on his life. He's looking back on what Jesus taught him. He's, he's reading the book of Mark and reading the book of Matthew and reading the book of Luke, we know he cites all three of them as he writes. And, and he's, he's discussing this with people. And, 
And he's writing this gospel down. He's writing down these things. And it's, it's the most overtly um, evangelistic. He's trying to convert you. Many, many people throughout the history of the church have come to know Jesus as their personal Savior because they read the book of John. And no other source except the book of John and the Holy Spirit has led thousands of people to Christ over the years. And so if you've not read it, I, I recommend, please be reading it. Get ahead. Read the whole thing from beginning to end a few times. It's a broad audience. But see, by the time John wrote this, there were believers of all nationalities. He had to write it in such a way that it would make sense not just to a Jewish audience or not just to a Greek audience, but by now you had believers from probably just about every civilized continent at that time. And that's, that is, uh, that's amazing. It is good news for us. It was good news for a goofy high school student and a prideful for us today, wherever you are, and only you and God know that. It is, it is good news. It is right there with us. Um, we know that he's trying to convert us. He says so in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We get this explanation. Now, Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. So we get to study every account and ask, well, then why did John include this one? Because John, John tells us he left a bunch out. But he's going to include some of them. Why? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. There are a lot of themes to the book of John. There's a water theme and a light theme and an I am theme and an abiding theme, but one of the themes is life. And not just life, life fulfilled, life of value, life abundant, life packed in, overflowing, stuffed down. Uh, the type of life that gives us meaning and purpose and value, even if the circumstances of our life are discouraging or, or depressing or, 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 or overbearing or overwhelming, that even under those conditions that he would say, yes, but don't forget life. This is the life that you've come to experience. This is the life I came to give you. Your circumstances may not dictate this time by time, season by season. But even in the worst of circumstances, the core, the light, the abiding of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit through the power of Almighty God says, you have life eternal. And for too many who are raised in the church, we're under the impression that eternal life begins at death. Eternal life begins at conversion. Eternal life begins when we begin to follow Jesus Christ. And we are experiencing eternal life starting in that moment. The abundant, fulfilled, overwhelming life of significance that he offers. John the Baptist is introduced very quickly as one of the witnesses. Paul explained that. You can go back and listen to that. As one of the witnesses. Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? Whatever. Um, he is a witness. That's his job. He is that, the idea of a witness, that, that we're going to talk more about that. He is the martyr, um, which is actually what the word witness, that's, that is the word for witness, is martyr. Someone willing to give their life for the proclamation they would make. See, part of, what, part of what's cool about the life that Jesus Christ gives us is it's a life worth giving away. Um, the, the, as, as you all know, the very famous Dr. Martin Luther King once said, um, a man is not fit to live until he has something worth dying for. And I, I think that's a powerful statement of truth. Until you have a life that's worth giving away, you don't have a life at all. It's very cool. This, this idea of being a, a witness, let me, let me reference over to Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. We talked about this, I think, early in the fall, late in the summer. We talked through the book of Hebrews. And, and the book of Hebrews, we have this, in Hebrews 11, we have this fascinating series of people thrown at us. It's often called the, the faith hall of fame or things like that. But I think sometimes it confuses people when they don't 
have it in context. What it is, is it's a series of witnesses being called in a court case. Um, and so what happens is you imagine the court, the trial someday where we stand before Almighty God and, and, and you say, well, Your Honor, I, um, I didn't have enough information. Listen, you didn't give me a complete enough picture. You didn't, fill in, you didn't fill in all the blanks for me. You didn't color in all the colors. Since I didn't have a complete picture and I demanded a complete picture, I couldn't believe and I wouldn't believe. I wouldn't put my faith. And God says, you're claiming it's impossible to put faith without a complete understanding? That's right, sir. All right. Well, then I call to the stand Adam. Adam, did you understand what was going on? Pretty much never. Did you get the consequences of you eating from that tree that I told you not to eat from? No, not before. Do you understand that you are dividing yourself out from life eternal in that moment? That the tree of, of eternal life had to be taken from your presence to protect you from an eternal life fallen? I did not understand that. No, sir. But you lived out the rest of your days separated out and you still believed. Yeah. All right, next witness, Abel. Abel, what do you know about sacrifices? Pretty much nothing. No Levitical law, Abel? Not yet. No Moses? Not yet. No Abraham? Not yet. Well, so you were just making a sacrifice the best you could. Yeah, that's all I knew to do, so I made a sacrifice to you. It was a good sacrifice, wasn't it, Abel? I'd like to think so. You seem to be okay with it. But you didn't understand the concept? Not really. But you still believed? You acted in faith without knowing the whole thing? Yes, sir. All right, next witness. Abraham and Enoch and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Daniel. This whole line, this, this whole crowd, you might say a whole cloud of witnesses called to the stand one after the other to show you don't know the whole picture. That's no excuse. I gave you enough to believe. Since therefore, it says in Hebrews 12, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, of martyrs, of people giving testimony, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what it means to be a witness, someone willing to take the stand and say, I didn't get it. I don't get it. By the way, I don't get it. I'm not, I'm not up here. They don't, they don't have me come up here and preach because I somehow get it. If you get it, please come switch now because I need to know it. I've got lots of questions, and all of us do, and we face tough times in life and challenges. That's not, we don't have to get all of it in order to get enough of it to know the truth. You don't have to know all truth, know some truth, and if you know some truth, you can put your faith in that truth. This was his testimony. We find it in John 1, 29. I'm going to race through at least one verse today. Just, just flying through the book of John. Um, the next day, actually, you know what? I'm going to have everybody stand. I don't normally do this. Paul, Paul has y'all do this every time, but this one was worth, in my mind, it's concise enough. It's right here in the middle. You read this with me, John 1, 29 and 30. The next day. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Have a seat. We'll stop there.
because I'm not getting that far. So we get John, by the way, all through this, we get John, you got to love John. Um, John is explaining things, again, a broad audience. He's going to explain things to you that Matthew would never explain to you because he knows his Jewish audience. They understand what he's saying. He can just make little references and they get it. Mark doesn't explain hardly anything. He just throws it in there knowing, oh, you're, you're going to do the, re- you know this stuff. Um, Luke does some of that too. Luke does more explaining as a Greek uh, doctor. He gives you a little more detail. John is going to actually do these little parentheticals. Because he, he assumes an ignorant audience, which is nice for most of us, right? That he says, he'll say stuff like, um, well, this, that means teacher. It's like a little aside. Like he's teaching up here, and then, you know, the slow crowd is sitting over here, and he's like, that means teacher. That means, that means Peter. Like he's, that's, that's what he's doing all through it. So all of us get to feel like we know what's going on. We get John's little commentary as he goes through. The story is a pretty strong immediate story. Remember when we went through Mark on Wednesday nights, how how Mark loves the word immediately? Um, John likes the phrase, the next day. And so he links things by a night's sleep. John John the Baptist was baptizing. We'll learn more about that in John 3. We get to his witness, and here it is. The baseline for all, in many ways, all sermons. In a few minutes, um, uh, I'm going to, just in a second, I'm going to have Bill Heimball, who is the chairman of our deacons, come up and and he's going to pray over our church with this. The first word in this statement, his witness, his pointing, John the Baptist with his, apostles, with his disciples, his students, points and says, Behold, look over there. Don't miss this. Look at this. And, and I, I sent out, so I started looking at behold verses, and there's a bunch of them. In the, in the, in the English Standard Version, there's 2,350 of them. So instead of me going through all of them, I posted on Facebook and said, what's your favorite behold verse? What's your favorite verse in the Bible that has the behold in it? I got a bunch of answers, and some of them were after I turned in the notes, so if yours didn't make it, sorry, but how about this? Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, herb-bearing seed and every tree. That was God speaking to Adam. Uh, My personal favorite, behold, a woman was asleep at his feet. I've always liked that one. Remember we taught that one through Ruth and Boaz? Behold! Oh my, what? Anyway. Um, behold, I am doing a new thing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Behold, how good and pleasing it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Behold the man. That one didn't stand out to me until I saw the passion for the first time. See Pontius Pilate speaking in Latin, Ece homo. Behold the man. Very powerful. Behold, Jesus said, I am making all things new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Behold, I am coming soon. Rebecca Raines, our um, executive director of ministries, said, um, it's like the book of John is the gospel beheld. Like somebody should have asked her 2,000 years ago what the subtitle for John should have been. That's pretty good. So Bill's going to come up, and Bill is uh, the chairman of the deacons, and the deacons at, at, at South Spring, the deacons, well, the name means serve. What they do is serve, and they serve so intentionally that we point to them and say, this is what it looks like to serve, and and so they serve, they lead by serving. And one of the ways that Bill wants to lead 
um, and serve our church with the, that is to guide these, this year's deacons to really focus and emphasize prayer. And so I've asked him to come, and here's what I've asked him specifically to pray for, is that God would protect that the, that the teaching of South Spring Baptist Church from now until the day that the doors close or the world burns is some version of, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That that would undergird everything else that is taught here. No matter what else is taught, that that would be what's underneath that teaching is that gospel. So, Bill. Father, we just come to you now, Father. I just want to embrace your message. What a powerful gospel you've given us through the John and the whole message of behold, wake up, listen, listen closely. The Lamb of God is here. And I pray, Father, that the Lamb of God and that message of, of love and grace, eternal salvation will always be with us. And that message will always resonate from whoever's standing up here, whether it be Chris or anybody else in the future and those who are teaching out there amongst our campus right now, Father. That, that message will always resonate with us, Father. We can grab it. We can embrace it. May that message give us hope. We've seen a lot of yet another tragedy this week in our country, Father. We struggle to understand many things that happen amongst our midst, Father. But that one message, Father, that comes from us, the message of Christ, the message that purifies, cleanses, redeems us, I pray we will always remember that. It will always be that calling card for us to keep coming here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So I just put my hand upon Chris now and ask that the, the words that God has given him now will speak to you, resonate within your body, and may the Spirit cover you and give you that peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Bill. <clears throat> so behold... Um, I think, I think one of the things that, that maybe is worthwhile in one another's lives as the Spirit speaks to us and leads us is so often we get to a place where we feel blinded to what God is doing, where we, for whatever reason, we can't see it. We, just, we, don't, we don't see it. We're not seeing it. And, and it's so important that we have other people in our lives. John the Baptist is giving this, is telling this to his students. He's not pointing to himself. He's getting their attention. Hey, guys, look. Behold, let's, let's, when we can fan that into flame in one another's lives, behold, look, here's what you're missing. Behold, let's never get used to God's power to surprise us. Let's, let's never, never think that somehow we've reached a point where God can't do that anymore, where God's not going to do that anymore, where there's not something new for us to behold. That would be tragic. Behold, I am doing new thing. Now behold what? Behold the Lamb. So this is, this is powerful stuff right here. The fact that he refers to Jesus, behold the Lamb. Um, Genesis 22, 7 and 8 has a great passage um, that connects to this. Isaac said to his father Abraham. You remember this passage? So if you've not grown up in church, here's what's going on. Or if you haven't you've forgotten it, what's going on is God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Now Abraham knows this is this is weird. This is not something God does. God is not a God who wants the sacrifice of people's, of, of people's own children. That's not how that works. It's like other gods did that, but, but this, is, this God didn't do that. And so Abraham was confused, but he's like, okay, if you say so. And so 
Abraham takes his son Isaac, who, by the way, isn't a little kid. He's, he's like a 30-year-old, if I remember correctly, and, and takes Isaac and takes him to the hill. And here's what you get. And Isaac says to his father, my father. And Abraham says, I'm here, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Understand, that's that's a precursor of what's to come. They get there, and in fact, God does. God says, no, no, Abraham, you don't need to, you don't need to kill your son. <clears throat> you don't need to sacrifice your son. Instead, here is a ram. Here is a fully grown male lamb, sheep, to take the place. But this was, this was a foreshadowing. God saying, no, no, the day is going to come when you and when I, when we need a lamb to be sacrificed, and we don't have one. And he goes, I've got one. I'll provide the lamb. This lamb will be provided by me. Isaiah 53, 7, in this prophecy, he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before the shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. This is, this is Israel. They sacrificed a lamb twice a day. Every morning at about nine, every afternoon at about three. They did the burnt offering. Numbers um, 28 goes into detail as to what this was about. A firstborn male lamb with no blemish is taken at 9 o'clock, about, every, about 9 o'clock every morning, about 3 o'clock every afternoon, and burned in completion. This is, this is a burnt offering. This isn't one of those that they cut it up and they each get some. I'll talk about that in a second. But this is a burnt offering where it is, it is, it is incinerated, burned to ash. Every day, communicating the daily, full, complete, and utter devotion to Yahweh that the people of Israel allegedly have. When Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross at about 9 o'clock on that Friday or Thursday morning, depending on what you believe, won't get off on that, but on that morning when he's crucified, about 9 o'clock, there was a lamb being burned. And when he cried out, It is finished! At about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a lamb being burned every day. I did not know until this week the Greek words for this, the burnt offering, how I made it to this age without knowing this, that the word, the word for burnt offering means holy burned in the Greek, holy burn, holy, holos, burn, kaustos. When the Hebrew people chose a name for what they experienced in World War II, the name they gave to what they experienced was burnt offering, holocaust. That's, that should have an emotional tie for what we're talking about. That's how significant this is. Burned completely, utterly destroyed. That's what that means. That's, that's the, the burnt offering they experienced every day. That's the lamb of everyday sacrifices. And certainly when John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb, he does mean the lamb to be utterly destroyed in order to lead us to devotion to Almighty God. And I believe also the lamb of the Passover. I think the fact that Jesus is crucified and killed and is in the grave during Passover is, is not subtle. It's meant to communicate to us clearly this is what's being done. We're going to have it. We will experience Passover. We will have a Passover feast here um, the week of Easter, before the Wednesday before Easter. If you've never experienced that, I highly recommend it. You will begin to understand some stuff from the Bible you've missed 
It, it's a little bit, I'm telling you, the first time you do it, there's a number of times when the hair stands up on the back of your neck when you realize what the significance of what we've experienced is, what communion really is, for example. This is that lamb, the lamb who is cut to pieces, whose blood is taken and spread, again, not very subtle here, spread on the cross pieces of the door. That's, that's the lamb that, that, God, that, that, that is being referenced here. Behold, that lamb... Which one? The Lamb of God. Not just any lamb. This is God's own lamb. This is the one that God chose. This is the one that God has sent. Just like Abraham, he sent his own. God has provided the lamb. The one he had chosen. 1 Peter 1, 18-21 says this. Listen to, listen to when Jesus was chosen for this. And, and this is in the middle of a thought, which I apologize for, but the thoughts are really long ones, so I've, I've tried to cover it, but go back and read in 1 Peter um, one, to get the full context. But knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal way inherited from your forefathers. And just a quick side note. I have to mention as a therapist, it's one of the most therapeutic verses in the entire Bible. I love that verse. The idea of being set free of the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. Dang. I love that. That's one of the many things we're set free from. But not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, for us, who, though, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Understand, before the laying of the foundations of the cosmos, before the world was created, before time began... God knew the triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit knew that man would fall. And they knew that redemption was required. And they made a plan before all of that for the redemption of his people, of mankind. And Jesus Christ was chosen, was selected by them himself to declare, I will go be that lamb. I am chosen to be that lamb. That's the lamb. The other, the other passage that immediately came to my mind was that, that great story. I mean, I love this one. Um, anything that involves David usually has, is uh, cool to me, but a story of David when David has, has murdered a close friend in order to get his wife. That's one of those chapters I get to in the Bible, and I'm, I'm sad it's there every time. When I read through, I'm like, no, not this time again, right? Like, surely this time David's going to learn. So David, David murders a, a close friend in order to get his wife. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and says, Hey, David, let me tell you a little story. You won't believe what I just heard about. So here's what happened in this story. So in this story, there's a guy, and he's got one little lamb, and it's his favorite. I mean, he loves this lamb. It's like a son to him. And he just loves this lamb. It's a pet. It's great. It's a cute lamb. And then there's this other guy, and he's got lots of sheep, lots and lots and lots of sheep. And this really wealthy guy with lots of sheep, he has a neighbor come in, a visitor come in from out of town. So he goes and gets that other guy's one little lamb that he loves like a son, and he slaughters it and feeds it to his guest. What do you think ought to be done? And David says, well, kill him. I mean, David kind of goes over the top here, right? I mean, even at the worst, this is still just stealing a lamb. But David is infuriated by this. 
And I would love to see this presented really, really well in a dramatic moment in a movie or something like that. But the way it's presented, I don't know if it's chillingly cold or if Nathan slams his fist. I don't know exactly how Nathan responds to it, but Nathan says, you're that man. See, God the Father had one lamb, like a son to him. Because it was his son, his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the Father. He's loved the, the, the triune God is a, has always existed. There's a, they, are pre, they, they are necessary pre-existing persons. The triune God, God has always been, and their love is overflowing for one another and always has been, always being a, a term that's the closest we can come. There was, there was a day when I was holding my, my son, Mark Hampton, at that time my only begotten son, holding that little baby in my hands, and one of the first thoughts that came to me was, Man, everybody's lucky that I'm not God. Because if it was all of yous or him, let me just tell you, you'd been out of luck. But God took that lamb, his precious lamb, like a son to him. And we're going to see that it was, it was actually that Jesus Christ with great joy sacrificed himself. That lamb, the lamb of God. What does he do? He takes away the sin. Great Greek wording here. Takes away the sin means to take it and leave with it. To pick it up and run away. To walk away with it. This is what every superhero has done with every bomb in every movie, right? They pick it up and they run off with it. They go. They, now, somehow they always end up surviving it somehow, no matter how unbelievably that's scripted out. Jesus did not survive taking our sin and running off with it. When he picked up our sin and he bore it someplace where he bore it, cost him his life. It's, and then... Praise God, he was resurrected because that's the power that, that sin was dealing with. But he takes away the sin. This sin means not just transgression, not just anger, not, not just rebellion. It means just falling short, which we all do all the time. Everything we do is infected by this, the word hamartia here, to fall short of the glory of God. Anything other than the character of God, that's the sin. He picked that up and he took that away. And it is intriguing that it's, it's singular, not plural. Um, a lot uh, has been done with this, that this seems to be, therefore, the sin, like the overarching, the very fall itself, the sin of the world, which we'll get to the world here in a second. Um, now, there's more to it than that. It's not just that cosmic sin that Jesus took. It is also each and every sin. It is, it is an each and all situation. He took care of it all. Don't divide those out in such a way that you make it where Jesus missed some. That's a false understanding. Jesus is the perfect, complete sacrifice. If you accept the free gift of his salvation, you couldn't get another sin on your record if you tried. That would mean he missed one. And how insulting would that be? He didn't miss any. He took care of it. All of the sin of the world. Notice in Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's pretty clear. That we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And there we are, the last line in the proclamation. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The word here is cosmos. There's some irony in that. The arrangement, the order, the universe, humanity, 
government, what God has arranged. That's you, that's me, that's us. He, what He has arranged, that's the sin that He took away, the sin of the world, the deepest need of the world. We're reminded week after week after week. This is a fallen and broken place. There's no Sunday that that's not applicable. This is the deepest need, and this is Him. <clears throat> it's the witness of John, the pointed finger, behold, don't miss Him. I feel like that's the message of every church every time. Every time we interact with somebody, when we are the church at the grocery store and we're the church at the restaurant, our lives, our words, our very actions should say, look, 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 look. Don't miss this. Our families, when people interact with our families, our families, the way we live, it should be saying, look, look, don't miss this. And the way our marriages look. I've, you've heard me say a thousand times, you'll hear it a thousand more times if I'm here. If our marriages rocked, we couldn't build churches fast enough. The world, the world doesn't know it needs Jesus, but it knows its marriages are terrible. And if we were living out meaningful, powerful marriages, boy, they, if our lives seemed fulfilled, and not in each other. I was mentioning that in the first service. That's a painful thing. We want other people to be dependent on us, even though it's dangerous. They should know better. That's, that's even in our marriages. I don't remember, the, remember all of it, but I remember Ginger coming back from a mentoring relationship conversation thing and saying, yeah, I've realized I can't really depend on you to take care of me the way God has to take care of me. And everything in you rebels against that, right? Like, no, no, I'm sure, of course you can. Like, I, no, you can. No, you can't. We know that. Only God can fulfill the role of God. All the rest of us are going to let each other down all the time. It's part of what it is. There's a freedom in that, though. Isn't there a freedom in, in being able to say, behold, rather than too much of behold? At some point, this becomes dangerous. Hey, look at me. Even better, look at him. Always better. Does, do our lives point to Jesus? I, I wrote in my, in my notes here, I think it's natural when I say something like that for some of us to think of other people. Yeah, so-and-so ought to be doing that. Stop that. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. It's for me. Do we pointing to Jesus, the firstborn? Let me wrap up with this. It sets us free of, of what we see all the time in the counseling world. One of the major issues that we deal with, especially among men but women too, is that we put some image up. This is what I want you to think about me is this thing out here. I want you to see me this way and think of me this way and have this opinion and attitude about me. And, this, and you, you having that opinion about me is more important than you knowing me. This, boy, this is especially prevalent in ministry. Am I right? That this is, this is a temptation for all of us in ministry. We get up here on stage and we know, if you knew me, you might not want to learn from me. So let me create this fake image that you can follow instead. This, behold the Lamb, takes all that pressure away. It takes that pressure away. You don't have to follow me. You only follow me to the degree that I follow Jesus. You only follow each other. We follow each other to the degree we follow Jesus. That's what, what I was so proud to see Josh doing this morning. And we didn't get a chance to talk about this before so I'll say it now. He doesn't almost say this, but I'll tell you one of the reasons that I love listening and have John be read by, led by John Redford Sunday after Sunday is that John gets what it means to lead. Um, man, I'll tell you, you don't know this, but worship performances on Sunday morning are really not very much about performance. God forbid. There's a performance to be done, and there's excellence, and these people do it with excellence. But I loved being led. Did you see where Josh led us today? Did you experience being led by him to the utter reliance on Christ and Christ alone. Which is exactly what this text teaches us. 
He is preeminent. I'm going to end on this verse. Y'all can, y'all can go ahead and come on up. Colossians 1, 15 through 19 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dimensions or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Let us hold Christ first preeminent in our hearts. Behold the Lamb. If you've not met Him, meet Him today. Come forward and let us pray with you or somebody will be over there to pray with you. But if, you, if you've never put your faith in this God, behold, don't miss it. We pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who loves us and that you sent someone like John the Baptist to just cry out in the wilderness, look! God, I pray that my life will be like that, that our lives, our family, that our family will be like that, that people look at our family and say, what are they pointing at? I pray that our church will be like that, that people will come and see us and we'll be constantly saying, look over here, look over here. Look, behold, don't miss it. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that means your sin and my sin. Father, I'm so grateful that that you give us this message and the power and the opportunity to be your ambassadors and your witnesses that your son is with us. Behold, even until the end of the age. Help us to respond as we need to, Lord, in your, um, according to your magnificent will, through the precious son, chosen before the creation of time, but revealed now for our sake, for the sanctifying work of your spirit, I ask it. Amen. Stand if you